Hey, it's Bill Simmons. The NFL playoffs are in full swing, and the Ringer NFL Show has you covered for all your pro football needs. Sunday night, get Michael Lombardi and Tate Frazier's rapid reactions on GM Street. On Tuesdays, the Ringer NFL Show with Robert Mays, Kevin Clark, and regular guest Danny Kelly break down all the biggest angles on Wednesday. GM Street again on Thursdays. Clark, Mays, and Danny are back at it again. And on Friday, GM Street's Friday Focus gives you all the insight you need for gambling, fantasy, and everything else. Don't forget about my podcast, too, on Mondays. The BS Podcast, Cousin Sal and I playing Guest Alliance. More importantly, The Ringer NFL Show. Subscribe right now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. I need support staff to clear the room. Stand up and walk now. now. Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I am an editor at TheRinger.com and joining me on the other line, reenacting a purple place for dying, it's Andy Greenwald! Hey man, still on the phone. I apologize <laughs> for our audio fidelity head, but I'm back in the studio next week and we got a lot to talk about today. It just shows your commitment to excellence that you won't let <laughs> even this family vacation, the Greenwald family vacation, uh-huh. you still uh-huh. want to come through with the takes. Listen, the more kids you have, the more opportunities you want to work on vacation. I'm just being honest. <laughs> Is that true? I'm Would you say honest. that's the case? I, I, I'm saying a little me time, and me time meaning me and you and our beloved listeners, that's quality for me. That's, that's good nice. stuff. It's a nice, it's a little, little, little slip out the airlock, you know? I'm going right back in. I'm going right back into Solaris. I'm good. <laughs> Andy, it's Dark Thursday uh, in more ways than one. Um, we're talking about the Netflix show Dark. We're doing episodes four, five, and six today. So that would be the bulk of the show. Typically, so at the excited. top of watch episodes, we uh, bullshit with one another for a few minutes and also talk about stuff that's sort of making news these days. And obviously... Uh, the news is not good. You know, I mean, the news is generally incredibly naughty and it's also operating on a couple of different levels. Andy and I are obviously human beings and we uh, try to like have compassion for other people. And then there's also the element of like, what does this mean for X, Y, or Z element of um, the entertainment, the show business industry? Uh, So we have a couple of stories that are kind of bouncing around right now that we wanted to sort of touch on. Uh, and not to get too meta about it, but we're kind of like working through the way to talk about this stuff live. Um, and then, and that's sort of say, what... Sorry to jump in. I, I just think that like, you know, I, I, a lot of people who do what we do for, or who are lucky enough to do what we do for a living and, and get to talk about this stuff, I think for a long time have wanted to maintain kind of a quote unquote new critical approach to it. Like the new critics did. This is straight English major stuff, meaning the text is the text and we don't go beyond the text. We don't talk about the context. Um, that's always impossible, I think, but it sure is fun to try to make it possible when you have, you know, a season of Breaking Bad to talk about or, or like we're about to do with Dark. Frankly, we don't know the facts on the ground in Germany right now in the German television industry. Um, <laughs> we're just going to talk about the show. But look, one thing that we've always done on the show, and I'm proud that we've always done it, is we've tried to bring in some empathy and subjective knowledge of the industry as a whole, because especially when we talk about TV, um, although you could say this about all entertainment, the business story is almost always as much of a part of the story as the creative story. And we care more about the creative story, but you, the creative story isn't the whole story. I mean, the business part always determines who gets cast, what gets promoted, what gets made. Mm-hmm. So we find ourselves in this position where, while we're struggling with this convergence of events, everyone is. I mean, whether it's thanks to Twitter or thanks to um, the political moment, 
all of the walls are crashing in at the same time. And so just to use an example, before we get into the bullet points of some stuff that has happened this week since Monday, since Monday, Monday morning almost, is when the, all these other stories started to break, um, is that, you know, we love the show The Deuce. We like talking about the show The Deuce. We're looking forward to talking about the second season of The Deuce and having Megan Abbott and George Pelicanos and other writers whom we admire and like and have become friendly with on the show to talk about it. One thing that's part of the story of the second season of The Deuce is James Franco is the star of that show. Yeah. And even, you know, previewing it, discussing what it might be. Now, we don't know what's going to happen with him or his career, or we can't speak to the veracity of any of what's going on. That's not our, we wouldn't presume to do so. Yeah, for but just anybody who's not aware, in flux. for anyone who's not aware, uh, Andy's referring to a Los Angeles Times report today that mm-hmm. uh, went into greater detail about some stories that had been circulating online and on Twitter and some some various other places about uh, Franco's behavior, specifically his behavior with people who attended his uh, filmmaking school, his acting school. I think it was called Studio 4 that was based out of here. And um, you can read the Los Angeles Times piece to find out the details about that. Um, but this obviously brings up a lot of conversations where, you know, as he was going through the Golden Globe ceremony, wearing a Time's Up pin, winning for Best Actor in a Musical or a Comedy, having this kind of coronation, there was also this counter-narrative and this counter-story happening about, you know, I, I'm not I'm not sure what's going to happen, but it's, you know, it, it, arguably his downfall, you know what I mean, at least for, for the time being. And um, he's been accused by at least five people of of sexual misconduct and sexual assault in some cases. So, you know, he's been doing some press this week. He was on uh, Colbert and Seth Meyers, and both hosts asked him about it, and he tried to talk about it in a, in, in, a, in a certain kind of way. But it's kind of bizarre to see this Hollywood dog and pony show that is award season where people are going through these um, – media marathons, doing all these interviews, doing all these promotional bits to promote the films that they're trying to be awarded for. And if they get awards, that will catapult them to new earnings levels, which we will talk about in a second, uh, mm-hmm. and have that juxtaposed with this actually becoming an opportunity to put Franco's feet to the fire, as we saw Colbert and Seth Meyers do over the course of the week when Franco appeared on their late night shows. And Franco is sort of a weird case. He is not reclusive. I mean, he is a very performative. A lot of the stuff that he does with his own celebrity is stuff he turns into art. Um, you know, just thinking about when he did that soap opera and then that soap and then the, the the footage from that soap opera or his performance on that soap opera became part of an art installation. Um, this is not an art installation. This is real life, and these are real people that he is alleged to have hurt. But at least it's what do you think about the idea that this is all happening not just in public because it's being reported on but because it's actually being it's taking place in front of our eyes in a lot of ways well yes and the reason you know the other reason why it's it's happening now aside from again aside from the particular moment and aside from the fact that let's all hope that time is indeed up that this is award season and award season is the time when the people behind the characters and behind the movies step forward and speak as themselves and receive awards as themselves um and that is that you know that shatters this sort of the idea of being a new critic completely, right? Because what we are really doing is celebrating celebrity. We're, we're, we're the performances that these people give and the art that they make, or that they've been allowed to make, which is a whole separate other question. Um, exist, you know, and you know, I, I don't know if we even talked about it much on the podcast, but I saw the disaster artist. I thought it was 
completely, deeply inessential, but I really enjoyed it. And I thought Franco's performance was really good. That is my opinion of his performance in the film The Disaster Artist. He is now standing in front of microphones, and he is now being given awards for who he is and what he's done. And that is when these questions can and should be asked of him. So, you know, I, I don't know. Thankfully, we are not in a position to... We're not adjudicating this, but we are wrestling with it in, in, in terms of our own uh, appreciation and understanding of, of the work that we're seeing. Well, um, I guess what, you know, what I was trying to get you know, at I, is I, just I, this idea that when people get awards, generally, especially the actors, there is this overarching narrative that is attached to, their, to, to that win, which is the things that they did to get it, that whether it was the various roles, whether it was this, their time, whether it was the kind of role they played that appeals to a certain mm-hmm. uh, voting body. And to have that sort of shattered and have this entire machine almost turned back inside on itself to say, what about you as a person? You know, mm-hmm. what, like, and are you, you know, you want to come out and say, vote for me, go see the disaster artist, you know, celebrate me as this sort of quirky postmodern celebrity. And now, now you're actually under the microscope. It's 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 a outside of what he may or may not have done. It's a it's an it's a kind of bizarre moment of celebrity. Look, there's something that we, you and I, might or other people might quickly ascribe to Twitter culture, but it actually has always been deeply baked into awards culture, to Oscar culture, which is the idea that the people who do work that we like also are heroic off screen that the people are good people and deserve awards and will deliver a touching speech and love the right people and, you know, say, tell their children to go to bed now that they've seen daddy or mommy win. You know, perform the performance, continue the performance of being a good person. Now, this is going to be the business of, of Hollywood and maybe, you know, going forward. And it's going to be the, it's going to be our business as well as people who talk about this and, 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 and critique and engage with and interview people involved in it. But, it is a strange moment to expect, um, not to expect decency, you know, from people that we award and reward financially. I don't even want to be misconstrued as saying that, but to expect um, the best behavior that we would expect from our friends and loved ones from everyone, you know, and I, and I don't know if that's where this is headed. I, I, it's a fascinating moment. The only thing I was going to bring up as a counterbalance um, is just as we were about to record, um, Dan Harmon, the creator of Community, uh, released a podcast, or he has a podcast, but on it, he took, I believe, something like eight minutes to just completely, um, without reservation, uh, without self-pity, without any kind of mask whatsoever, apologize for his treatment of writer Megan Gans, who had broken her own silence and accused him of mistreating her and harassing her when she worked on what are, I think, inarguably the best seasons of Community. And to hear the way that he did it and, you know, her grace in accepting it, which she did not have to do, was kind of a, you know, I, I don't want to say a silver lining on what's already been a, a, a challenging and troubling week, but it it did make me feel a little better for a moment to see someone just point blank examine himself and and leave it at that. Ask for apology, but not expect one. You know, I don't know. It's something. But this is what we're talking about today. I, I know we also wanted to talk about the ways that you know, the, the Franco story is obviously disturbing um, and speaks to individual misconduct, but it, it's worth noting that other stories that are coming out this week speak to, I think, a more insidious problem, which is the sort of systemic and institutionalized misconduct that exists in gender politics, particularly in Hollywood, um, 
And that's the all the money in the world story, which you and I were crowing about a few weeks ago is, you know, uh, how exciting, how great, because it itself was. <laughs> yeah, a if, this, if this time period has taught me anything, it's don't crow about anything. <laughs> no, I, I know. I know. And, you know, the facts of this one are still coming out. Um, but basically, I mean, do you want to do you want to run? Do you want to do the rundown on this since you're actually on a microphone and I'm on a. Yeah, I, sure. I mean, obviously, everybody read about um, I think more people read about all the money in the world replacing Kevin Spacey with Christian Plummer than actually went and saw all the money in the world, which did not do very well at the box office. Um, and uh, obviously, it's a really Scott movie about J. Paul Getty and the kidnapping that took place, I think, in the 1970s. Um, Michelle Williams, Mark Wahlberg were also in the film. When Kevin, the allegations against Kevin Spacey came to light, he was removed from the film. Plummer replaced him. And Ridley Scott reshot scenes with Christopher Plummer that had originally been Kevin Spacey's. To do that, he needed some of the cast. Uh, and there was a very public kind of we're all in this together moment. Uh, Michelle Williams had said that she would have done it for free, that she would have given away her vacation. vacation, And she uh, apparently was paid her the basically whatever the minimum wage her per diem was, you know, uh, on, on the set. Um, it has now come to light that while she took obviously next to no money to do this, to go back and reshoot her scenes, Mark Wahlberg uh, allegedly negotiated for a million and a half dollars. There was a report in USA Today uh, earlier in the week and that the way that the stories have been written paint it so that it was like basically like Mark Wahlberg knew he had the sort of leverage in this situation. They needed him uh, and he he got his money. Now, um, the the juxtaposition between Wahlberg and Williams and doing something altruistically because it's it needs to be done and to save the movie and to feel good about the movie coming out. They wanted to replace Spacey. Michelle Williams is willing to do whatever it took, whereas Mark Wahlberg demanded a certain amount of money. Uh, and there's details in, depending on which story you read, uh, there are there are some that are more Wahlberg friendly, and there are some which are very anti Wahlberg. And then there is the conversation about the fact that Michelle Williams and Mark Wahlberg are represented by the same talent agency. Yeah, I think that's where the problem lies, to be honest. I mean, look, let's let's start from one place, which is that people should get paid for work that they do in general. That is a strong belief I have. I think our good friend Chase Serrano put it best. And, in a, it, it, you know, and the kind of way that you would want to put as your yearbook quote, which is fuck that working for free shit. I completely agree with that and base my professional life on that as well. But let's look at the specifics of the case. Because in this case, Ridley Scott basically said, please, we need to do this. I'm going to do it for free. Is there any way we can make this happen? Michelle Williams, and I think this speaks to who she is and her character, said, yes, this is so important to me because I believe in, um, you know, I don't want to be part of, I don't want all this work that I did personally to go to waste. I don't want all this work that all these people that I worked with and believe in to go to waste. And I don't want to valorize Kevin Spacey, who is an accused sexual predator. So she immediately signaled that she would do it and gave up her Thanksgiving vacation with her daughter, who spent it with other family members and was apparently supportive of her mom doing this. Um, this immediately gave Mark Wahlberg leverage because once the other star had agreed to do it, then he could control whether it actually happened or not. Is it good agenting to then demand more money to do it? I mean, that's what agents do. Agents look at the situation, see what leverage is possible, and extract the most money possible for their client. That yeah, is their this, job. Is the, this is the Chris Rock joke that. about that tiger went tiger. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> well, well, well said. 
But I think that what we need to look at when we talk about this is who's representing who and what are the expectations from different people. It is stereotypically or not, it is generally assumed in the workplace, and this is one of these institutionalized systemic problems that is almost never addressed and is now being talked about, that women will collaborate, that women will put their own concerns aside first and go along with things to make things better. The assumption clearly was, if they asked Michelle Williams first, the hope was that she would go along with it, and she did. Now, that speaks, very, that speaks well to her, but the agency, the same agency, needs to be representing her as well as it is representing Mark Wahlberg. Either none of, neither of them get paid, either they get paid and they donate it to charity, or they both get paid and they should be paid equally, because let's remember, she's the star of the movie. Right. Uh, it, it is complete negligence, or worse, on behalf of the agency, to, to have this come out like this and to have it be handled like this. And it's so deeply disrespectful. And it's disrespectful in a way that feels incredibly familiar because it's disrespectful in the way that all of these stories have been disrespectful. It's really, I would say it's shocking, but in fact, it is the opposite of shocking. The connection here, too, between the two stories is that this stuff that was happening under the rug, behind curtains, behind closed doors, whispered about, done over text message, is coming out. It's fascinating to live in a world where you don't talk about money. I mean, at least that's, you know, I, I think mm-hmm. you, you don't talk about, for as much as we talk about money, for as much as we talk about whether this actor is worth $20 million a movie or this NBA player is worth $25 million a season, the the way that we talk about money is different. And in, and in, and in a weird way, this is a very symbolic story about, like what you're saying, about something that happens in industries all over the country, all over the world, is this, financial incentive of being a man, you know? This was something that was a a low-key story. It wasn't even a low-key story, but it was an undercurrent of some of the stuff you were seeing at the Globes. It was Natalie Portman talking about no women being nominated for Best Director. And then Jessica Chastain talking about, and Jessica Chastain, I believe Gina Davis and Susan Sarandon, talking about pay discrepancies, talking about people being paid less than their male counterparts for doing equal, if not more, work. And... This is something that I think that, uh, you know, I don't, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know where we're going to be. We're, on, we're doing a podcast this time next year, and you're doing it for free, obviously. Um, <laughs> I don't know where we're going to be. I don't know if we're going to be like, oh, you remember when that was like such a big deal last year? Or if we're still going to be talking about it. And I kind of hope, I hope that it is. Yeah. I hope that you and I have more uncomfortable. Uh, so what should we talk about? Should we talk about Franco? I mean, I don't want this to keep happening to people, but I hope that this stuff is remains in the forefront of the conversation so that some some things actually change. Yeah. And let me just say one thing, going back to the Golden Globes, which suddenly feel like they happened six months ago. Big Little Lies won. And I said something that may have even been considered as flippant um, on our podcast from Monday, saying that the Golden Globes producers had done a good job staggering the Big Little Lies eligible awards throughout the evening to make it seem like the evening was following some sort of narrative. Um, I, I, I don't think I should have been so glib in suggesting that Big Little Lies was significant, um, not just because I didn't finish the series, which is on me. The thing to remember about that show, it's not just awarding Nicole Kidman and Laura Dern for being terrific actors, which they certainly are. No one is doubting that. The significant thing about Big Little Lies is that that only happens because of the producerial power of Nicole Kidman, Reese Witherspoon, and Reese Witherspoon's producing partner, Bruna Papandrea. They made that happen. They put that package together. They got Shailene Woodley. They got um, Zoe Kravitz and Laura Dern. 
They hired David E. Kelly, who, yes, is a man. They hired John Mark Vallee, who is a man. They worked for the women in this case. And not only did they make it an award-winning hit, it was a huge uh, ratings hit for HBO. And a potentially, if you know, if they're continuing to make more of these things, which they now are, a franchise of some kind for HBO, a network which is nominally the most powerful, although that's been flipping to Netflix, and but one that is certainly in need of more hits now that Game of Thrones is going off the air. So let's remember that as the triumph from Monday night, and hopefully we'll see more things in that vein going forward. And remember, you know, the huge power imbalance that exists, as we're reminded of daily, the, any opportunity for some correction some corrective to be made towards that is a win for everybody. Yeah. Uh, so we'll take a quick break here uh, to hear from our sponsors, and we'll be back to talk about episodes four, five, and six of Dark. Hi, Bachelor Nation. This is Juliette Littman, host of the Bachelor Party podcast. A new season of The Bachelor is in full swing, and so the podcast is back, but this time I have my own feed. You can find new episodes every Monday night by going to theringer.com slash podcast or by subscribing to Bachelor Party wherever you get them. Come for the recaps and roses, stay for the drama, and for moments like this. Please tell me you don't already have a little wiener. I do not have this. So, yeah, you did good. You did awesome. Good. Don't forget, subscribe to the Bachelor Party podcast today. It's available everywhere, including Apple and Spotify and Google. Andy, we're back. Dark Thursdays. Uh, this is the one that I was the most excited for, this chunk right now. So we're talking about episodes four, five, and six, the Netflix show Dark. We talked about the first three episodes last week. Um, these were the ones where, and you and I have talked about this a little bit offline, but this is the one, these these are the five, three episodes that I thought um, went went up a notch. That kind of took the leap as a sh- helped the show take a leap outside of oh, cool mystery with some interesting supernatural elements. To shit gets deeper, and the things that you do as a child reverberate throughout your life as an adult. I completely agree. I was ready to do this project with you because I thought the show was fun. And I thought it would be fun to watch. You know, something that was kind of did your head in in a sort of sci-fi genre way that would be well suited to this kind of engagement. And then I got to episode five, and then I got to episode six, and that was when I realized this show isn't just good, like this is a good way to spend some time watching it together with our listeners in January. This show is borderline potentially great. Yeah. And I was so, so, so impressed with these episodes. What looks like maybe some either uh, reticence or Germanic chilliness in the first episode, and the first second episode, is revealed in these episodes to be a masterful sense of control. This story is being uh, doled out to us by someone who knows what they are doing, by people who know what they are doing. And I think a lot about in this day and age, particularly in the international market, particularly in the international market that is deeply influenced by American TV and is now sort of spitting it back to us in bingeable form for Netflix, which has now become a you know an international player um, and in many ways helping to define what the international language of television is. There are two models, and poke holes in this if you disagree, or maybe I haven't thought it through enough because I'm in love with my own idea, <laughs> but two models for prestige drama coming out of the quote-unquote golden age or the difficult men era or whatever we're going to call it. One is a show that just moves 
forward breathlessly and pulls you along, and that's the Breaking Bad model. And I don't say that to be um, to, to, to I don't mean to mean to imply that pejoratively because Breaking Bad is a masterpiece, and we're going to talk about it again next week because the tenth anniversary just happened of the tenth anniversary of its debut. Um, the other model is more the Wire model, a show that settles in and spreads out. Yep, and dark. I was in on Dark when I thought it was the former, and I fell in love with Dark in these episodes when I realized it's actually the latter. Yes, and it's the latter in a way that isn't... So I think we had talked the last week about the idea that, you know, this was a brilliant act of plotting and that, you know, I always enjoy when there's a some sort of uh, watch or clock imagery in a show because I think that it indicates that the, sh- the writers of the show are taking the narrative... Uh, architecture of the show seriously um, that there's something I mean, I mean I know that that's an image you return to often when you wrote about Breaking Bad at Graylin was this idea that every little piece of this show matters um, and that's the thing that you feel about Dark is that these little character beats that you sort of notice but you're so engrossed in what's going on with these missing kids and these time jumps you realize that it's all going somewhere you know and I I, I think that the other show that you got to bring up when you talk about this this uh, show is Lost, because I felt like Lost did certain things with ensemble, with with acting ensembles, in terms of how this their stories were told, in a way that maybe we had seen before. But when you 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 teach people how to watch your show, and now I am starting to learn how to watch Dark, and I am starting to realize. Now that the the interconnectedness of the characters is second nature to me, you start to realize, oh, this is a Charlotte episode. And Charlotte, who just seemed like Ulrich's weird partner, is actually central to this show. And what I think is so cool about it is that when you watch a television show, it's not like life. Because the television show has to make decisions about who's going to spend the most time on screen, who are going to be the people who are the catalyst for the story to move forward or backwards or whatever. That's not life. Life is everybody is the star of their show. Life is, in my life, Andy is this person who is in a, a lot of, but not all of my life, and vice versa for us too. But the way that this show works by subtly pushing different people to the foreground or the background gives you so much more empathy for what they're experiencing, even if what they're experiencing is complete hogwash, you know? The, the show has an enormous amount of empathy, which I really, really appreciate. And frankly... I am I am shocked and ashamed at my behavior last dark Thursday when I made some jokes about not recognizing who was Charlotte or or or, or who was you were like who, who is this whomever, dude's, you didn't know Jonas's name my name is Jonas I mean <laughs> I mean it's right there in the song look <laughs> I wasn't there yet you know that that's like me saying who's that guy who wants to legalize drugs in Baltimore without you know what of course you you wait to learn Buddy Colvin's name. Yes. You understand what I'm saying? Yes. These people matter. These people have lives and they have personalities and they have been considered. And maybe the first time we see them, the mystery is intentional. And I love in five and six, and we can get into some of the specifics now, but I think you've already started to touch on them. It 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 should be second nature to storytellers of any genre or any medium to have the empathy and the generosity to give humanity to everyone in your in your show, in your novel, in your movie, whatever. But particularly, the humanity tends to drop away in heavily plotted genre stuff where there's just so much work explaining how the clock works and how each dial relates to another that you forget about, you forget that the people aren't just spokes on the wheel. Mm -hmm. 
I was really, really pleased to see that obviously that's not the case here. When we first meet Ulrich, let's think about it. When we first meet him and we don't know who he is, we see that he's sleeping with someone. By the time we really get the sense of who he is in the show, um, he is sort of our de facto, one of our de facto heroes. We've sort of forgotten his infidelity because now we see him as the victim of this terrible crime. Yeah. As the, and then we, when we see him confront Alexander at the gates of the nuclear plant, of course we're Team Ulrich. And we think Alexander is a stiff uh, bureaucrat, which he may well turn out to be also, because the point of the show is that people are more than one thing. They may be trapped in themselves. They may be trapped in cycles of violence and despair that they have no idea how to escape, whether they are supernatural reasons or, or quite frankly, quite natural reasons. But one of the most powerful moments in this show happens so far, to my mind, happens in episode six, um, when Regina comes home, the cancer news has now been told not just to the audience, but her husband knows it. Yeah. She knows he knows it. And he all he does is embrace her. And there nothing more needs to be said. He embraces so her because Regina just so went through Hagler Hearns with my girl Katerina. I mean, look, let's talk about this. You texted me the other day and you were like, are you team Charlotte? Are you team? Would you ask me if I was? I just was like, we were talking about team Hannah or team Katarina and you were like Regina and I was like Charlotte, you know? No, no. First of all, it's like, obviously, first of all, Charlotte is the queen. Yeah. I represent, I represent the Windenburg gang to the fullest. (laughs) That said, that said, Regina had a rough go of it, you know, and it doesn't seem to be getting any better. So look, it is exciting. This is exciting to even be able to do this. It's incredible to already have the level of um, interest and uh, I'll say empathy on our on our behalf for characters, so that when when Hannah seems to be almost irredeemable in some ways, when we see her face, when when Jonas sees his mother and his grandfather, because he suddenly wandered through the most claustrophobic nightmare cave of all time into the past. Mm-hmm. There's there's warmth on behalf of the audience too. We are almost happy to see them because they seem happy and young, yet they are always the same people. And to convey that through the scrim of a very elaborate, very complicated science fictional story, I mean, I don't know how you say kudos in German. Maybe you say kudos. I'm, that's all I want to say. Uh, can we talk a little bit about the hammer drop, um, which is something that I think yeah. you called. I had already seen it. You had texted me, I think, when you were watching three or four and were like, this is what's going to happen, right? And beginning, of, beginning of three. Yes, nice one, man. See, don't ever let it be said that you don't know what you're talking about. When they tell you that, don't listen to them. <laughs> they, 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 they probably will tell me that on Twitter. What Chris is talking about is the reveal that Mikkel is Michael Jonas's father. Yes. And that Mikkel was going to remain trapped in the past and grow up to father the son. And he killed himself on that night because that was the night he was disappearing. Um, and that he I, is, I and, and that there is because, the idea also that gives it the... It's not just the reveal. It's the fact that there's a line in yeah. his note that he says he grows up to be a man who never really knew where he belonged. And that is the one that really gets you because it articulates a character that you don't get to see at all. You don't really get you, – you, the first image of the show itself is Mikkel's suicide or Michael's suicide as it were. And you don't really get to spend very much time with him. All you see is the impact that his death has on the characters. And that line sort of tells you everything you need to know about him. It it also speaks to the mastery of the show, that the reveal is in episode five, the halfway point of a 10-episode season. Um, When we talked to our friend Sam Esmail about this stuff, and particularly when we were talking to him about season one of Mr. Robot, you know, he 
assumed people would know, and we're not going to spoil Mr. Robot here for people who watch Dark and don't watch Mr. Robot, but he assumed people would know the big twist in season one. He was not trying to hide that. He had a secondary twist that he was happy to keep relatively secret, hiding behind the first one. But he knew, and this is a lesson learned from plenty of entertainment, but you could point to Lost as one of them, you better have something to back up your story. It can't just be a twist or a reveal. You better have more to it than that. And it takes, that said, it takes a lot of confidence to create something wholly original. And I, of course, there are influences, but to create something not based on previously existing IP um, and then just be in your writer's room and whoever, however they do it in Germany, crafting it and then be confident in your storytelling and in the backbone behind the reveal that you can give it away when you give it away, knowing there is more to be told, knowing that you're not you're not you're maximizing the impact then because frankly if they'd drawn it out more it would have been ridiculous it, yeah. it would have lessened the the true impact of the show which is something that we've sort of repeated a number of ways as we've talked about it which is this idea of of never being able to escape yourself yes it, it's it gets you man i think you said it last week that it gets you it's no wonder that a show that that's about 40 year olds and 16 year olds would get us yeah and it also gets at this idea of you know i think that other shows have obviously played with the idea that everything that has happened, everything that is happening has happened before and will happen again, whether it's Lost or Battlestar, that these shows have have dealt with this idea that time is actually all happening at once. But there's something very heroic about this idea, and I don't know if that's exactly what's going to happen because I, I haven't watched ahead yet, that Jonas... And that all these characters are now in a place where they could actually fundamentally change their lives and right some of the wrongs that happened in the past because of this ability to go back. Or will nothing change? Because I, yeah. that's, it's impossible. And, I, you know, we'll, we'll talk about that next week. We don't know yet. Uh, I did want to ask you after, or do you, have, you, you want to say something about that? I, no, go ahead. I, I, I have to ask you something after you ask me something. I, we, we talked about this a little bit last week. We, we we leave parents corner typically for the Bill Simmons podcast, and I I have not I've not yet to father uh, a scion to my empire, but that you know of that I know of. But how are you gonna you can't let Yasin walk through the forest, guys. Like I I don't mean to repeat myself, but it's just like the forest needs to be a no go zone, right? <laughs> you can't be like where are you at yes because and, and the fact that Yasin's uh mom was like elizabeth do you need a ride it's wild raining out here as it is 348 other days of the year in Winden. birds are straight up dropping from the air everybody's draped up in the patagonia but i'm just gonna let Yasin take like a shortcut and bump into to to, to assassin's creed yeah i mean i i think that's you have to accept certain things in this. And one thing you have to accept, and it helps us, I think, being an American audience, is because we don't know. Like here in this country, as you know, let, me, let, me, let me retreat to Parents' Corner, and I'll use that particular week. There's often a joke, like on playgrounds, as we helicopter around our children, that people don't just let their kids play outside anymore, you know, for good or ill. Maybe right. that conversation hasn't really happened in Germany. I don't know. Maybe there's a, just an aura of safety emanating from good, clean nuclear power that makes people think that their kids should just be, you know, just Davy Crocketing nonstop, even if they are, yeah, I don't know, deaf, and there's an abductor of children roaming around in a priest <laughs> costume, or whatever the fact may be. You have to kind of accept that. And again, the emotional weight of the show helps erase some of those sins, that these things just seem, you have to create the circumstance for these children to disappear. And in reality, I don't think anybody would let their children out of their sight, full stop, maybe ever again. You know, I think that that's a, there's a strong possibility of that going 
going forward. But yeah, so so it's okay. So that's that's one nit to pick. Do you so have that, any others? Uh, no, that was really it. Um, I think that. I, I just I thought it would be re- I would be remiss if I didn't mention the sort of flip side to uh, what you're talking about with Ulrich in terms of going from, you know, being the nominal hero of the show and then slowly having his sort of world d- disassembled is the what they're doing with Hana, which I think is actually probably the most effective thing because it's taking an archetype of this sort of the woman who's ruining the other guy's life. And it's showing every single as- aspect of her life from her childhood through her adulthood that has sort of brought her to this place. And I don't know, obviously it draws heavily from Ian McEwen's atonement in terms of the, uh, the, 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 tr- the narrative trick it plays. But I really, really, really appreciate the way that they're handling that story. That idea of differing perspectives, I mean, it's a masterclass of it in, in 106, in the sixth episode. First of all, what again? What a ballsy move to 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 know or hope. Let's just say hope. There's no way they could have known that audiences would have been invested enough in the emotional arc of your characters, your many, 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 many characters by the sixth episode that you could have that extended vamp based around a monologue from Antigone uh, and have me be riveted. Yeah, riveted. Yeah. And obviously, part of that is sound design, which is exceptional in the show, and editing and direction, all of which is really, really strong. But for it, but for me, it is the emotional strings that are pulling me in. The fact that Katerina sees her daughter in pain, sees through the performance, and and you know, and and, and an, an incredible act of generosity and public performance of love basically rescues her daughter, and then five minutes later is cold cocking Regina in the hallway. I know, really beating and, her and down with a, with a purse too, just like going and getting after and, it. And for that that character swing, not. I don't mean the uppercuts she's delivering for that swing to be plausible. I mean, that's really, really, that's really something. Do we, do you want to take a minute? Oh, on that note, I did want to say when we're talking about Katerina and we're talking about her kids, I think about the show a lot, which speaks to it. It's a busy time. Not a lot of these things last after the screen goes dark, but I, I, I lay awake falling asleep thinking about the show. And one of the things I think about is which parts are incest now? And I think I figured it out. If you want to talk me through if there's any I'm missing, but I'm pretty sure yeah. that Jonas should just just step back and let Bartos have that girl. Yeah, you know what I mean, I it kind of like- is like very wind, uh, like wind of the lion, where it's just like Henry is with the woman that are his wife raised, but has already his wife is also you know with Philip or I can't even tell anymore. There's a lot of cousins in the mix. No, look, that's cool, but he's kissing his aunt. I mean. I, I just think we need to be upfront about that, and I imagine the show will now at some point as well. I think he's realized it. That's why he didn't show up for the performance, not because he hates theater. Although, again, weird turnout for theater that night. You know, it seemed like a lot of grown-ups were coming. For yeah, for sure. Play, big, which, big, big school yeah. playtown. Lo- big Winden loves to support the arts. Uh, Andy, we got to wrap not it up. Much, not much community. Not much community theater. Before we go, I know we have to go. Chris, do you just want to clear out in the lane, and and do you just want to say anything about? Queen Charlotte and why she's the best character on this show. Yeah, I just think that we've gotten so many, like, quote-unquote weird cops, like cops who are just, you know, empathic in their work but unable to interact with the rest of the world. And this is just not that character. She plays that way for the first two episodes. We're like, ooh, Charlotte's pretty weird. Birds dropping out of the sky. And then you see her character as a child where she's drawing them and this sort of fascination she's had with the Chernobyl birds. And it's just not that. She's just someone... She's just a very fascinating, well-developed character. 
And all of that is, you have to give almost extra points to something like that in a show that's this narratively complicated. You know, and all I want for Charlotte is happiness. I know that she probably will never be able to have a dill pickle with her sandwich. Or more sign language arguments with her daughter. I love those too. Uh, We got to wrap it up. Andy, uh, we will be back on Monday. We will be talking, I think we're going to talk about Breaking Bad on Monday, aren't we? Yeah, I think the 10th anniversary of it beginning was this week, but I didn't want to do it over the phone. So we're going to do a little Breaking Bad retrospective. Yes, so you guys have three days to watch the entire series of Breaking Bad for um, our podcast on Monday. uh, And then we'll be back Thursday to discuss the final episodes of Dark. And also, you know, that means Dark Thursdays are going to end next week, and we'd like to start chapter watching something else. We're considering Mosaic, the Steven Soderbergh show, premiering in a couple of weeks on HBO. Is there something that's been lingering on Amazon or Netflix particularly? Because I think, you know, streamable services that we can binge really lend themselves to this kind of coverage. Let us know, because honestly, Dark bubbled up at the end of the year. A bunch of critics noticed it for their top 10 list. Other people um, other people were raving about it. But really, I think it was from listeners on Twitter telling us we had to check it out. Absolutely. So our ears and eyes are open. Let us know. All right. We'll be back next week. Take care, guys. I will see you in the studio, Bransky. I can't wait. 